Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The word of the Lord. Well, it is the eternal question that Barry brought up. Why do bad things happen to good people? Indeed, if God is a good God, why do these bad things happen? If you are a person of faith, I know there are some who are seeking out who is this person, Jesus, and are here today, and we welcome you. Faith can be a minefield, can't it? As we seek to live out our life in Jesus Christ, where we can very easily slip into the practice of equating good times in our lives with God's blessing, and bad times in our life with God's curses. There's a great danger in the life of faith where our circumstances can define the God that we worship rather than the God that we worship defining our circumstances. I think of that wonderful movie, The Sound of Music, where Maria falls in love and, and uh, the man of her life, and she sings this song, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Because lo and behold, here is this good that is being repaid to me. Well, that, of course, begs the question, what happens where somewhere in my youth or my childhood or my adulthood that I've done something bad? And that's where I'm so thankful for this passion, this, this passage, because it gives us a bigger vision of our lives, a bigger purpose and promise of what God is doing in our lives. Indeed, it's a staggering promise that we have read, that we know that in all things God works for the good, together for the good of those who God has called according to his purpose. God, in this picture, paints a tapestry where everything in my life is coming together, and the ultimate result of it is good, not bad for us. How can we be sure that this promise is true? And how can we be sure that this promise is for me? Indeed, this promise rests on the bedrock of what Jesus Christ has done for me and why he has chosen to have done it for me. You see, it's God who set his affection on you and me before the foundations of the world. God has called us to himself, and the wonderful thing about the God we serve is what God starts, God finishes. And so we can take confidence in our circumstances because God is there in every every small minuscule detail of, detail of our lives. I want to take a look at this staggering promise, and I want to ask three questions. Number one, who is the promise for? It's a wonderful promise. Is it for me? Can I count on it for my life? Number two, what does the promise actually mean? What does it mean that all things work together for good? I need to understand that. And finally, number three, how do we live in this promise day to day? in the midst of the difficulty and the trial and in the triumph. Well, let's begin with question number one. Who is this promised for? Do you remember the, the, the letter of Romans has been written to the church of Rome and the Christians there. We've been talking, the Apostle Paul, to the believers. And the last week we talked about the fact that God who has given believers the Holy Spirit 
actually the Holy Spirit prays on our behalf, that we don't need to fear an incomplete prayer life because the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with words, with groans that words cannot express, but the Holy Spirit, in fact, fixes our prayers on the way up. Well, now Paul is moving from prayers, God's help in prayer, to God's help and sovereign action circumstances. Romans 8.28 puts it this way, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so this promise is for those who love God. Not in the general sense is Paul talking. He's talking specifically to Christians. See, the Bible tells us that nobody loves God in themselves. That nobody seeks God save for God's movement in our hearts through his Holy Spirit. He's talking about a personal love. Those who have been affected by God's grace have been moved by it. I love the story of the great St. Augustine, who was quite a profligate, quite a rebel. One time he wrote to God, Oh God, give me chastity, but not yet. <laughs> when Augustine, in his great book, Confessions, wrote of his conversion in Christ, he says, Not with doubting, but with assured consciousness do I love thee, O Lord. Thou didst strike my heart with thy word, and I love thee. See, there was a time when Augustine was moving and minding his own business, did not care for God, but God struck his heart with the word of the gospel, and he loved thee. See, if you're a Christian, you can understand what I'm talking about, can you? We all have one time or another where God did strike our hearts with his electing love, his love of grace, and we loved him in return. He's speaking to those who love Jesus Christ from the heart, even though we don't always show it, do we? Remember the Apostle Peter after he had denied Christ? And Christ comes to him and says, oh, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, of course I love you. And Jesus asks again, do you love me? And Peter at the end says, you know all things. You know I love you. Even though I denied you, you know my heart. That's the people that Paul is speaking to. It's those who love God, and it goes on to say those who are called according to his purpose. I'm speaking of a general call where one can come into a church somebody invited you and hear the gospel, but a call, a personal call, a responsive call in which God called and you answered that call. This word called appears again and again in the New Testament. For instance, at the beginning of this chapter, where Paul says, and you also, Christians, are those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is speaking to the brothers, and he says, brothers, think of you and who you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise, not many influential, not many noble, but God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong and the lowly things of the world. It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus. He called you. That word is a passive word, isn't it? He called you. But the question is, why did he call us? It goes on, doesn't it? It says, according to his purpose. Isn't that wonderful that God has a purpose for our lives? It wasn't a random call. It wasn't that I simply figured it out or heard it and happened to say yes to Jesus Christ. No, he called us according to his purpose. 
God has a greater purpose for your life and my life than simply to live for myself, to live comfortably, to have a great life, to grow old and to die in an old age in my bed. Now, this purpose is greater than that. The great thing about God's purpose is, is the purpose that he gives is the purpose that will stand. Isaiah 46, 9 puts it this way, where God says, Remember the former things long ago, that I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do what I please. God has a purpose for creation and the creatures, doesn't he? In Psalm 104, the psalmist replies, O Lord, how manifold are your works and wisdom. You have made all of your creatures. And here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable. All of them look to you, and you give them their food in due season. And when you give it to them, they gather it up. And when you open their hand, they are filled with good things. And when you hide your face, they are dismayed. And when you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. And when you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. God has a purpose for creation and he has a purpose for Christians. And what is that purpose? Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn, meaning Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, that's the purpose of our life, to become like Jesus. This word conformed in the Greek, morphos is the word. We all know the word metamorphosis, don't we? That's the same word, that God is metamorphosizing us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. In order, meaning the purpose, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, the reason that Jesus is conforming you into the image of his son is that the, so that you would be a son and a daughter of God, that ultimately the whole purpose of everything of what God is doing is to make you and I sons and daughters of God. That is the big picture. Now you may ask the question, why is it that God set his affection on me? Why did he call me? This word foreknew is the word, is a very interesting one, isn't it? Well, what do we know about the word foreknew? We think of knowing, it means to know beforehand. But know has a special word in the Bible. In the Old Testament, whenever you hear the word know, it deals not with cognition, but it deals with affection. Remember God speaking to Moses, where Moses said, I'm, I'm not coming down from this mountain. We're not going anywhere. If your presence will not go with us. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. How about the prophet Jeremiah? God said to him, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to a prophet to be a prophet to the nations. In the New Testament, this word know continues on, where Jesus speaks of those who are his flock. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. 
And finally, in 2 Timothy 2.19, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And so we can change the word for new to its true meaning, which is for loved. And those God for loved, He predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. Long before you ever existed, Christian, those who are followers of Jesus Christ. He not only knew you, he loved you. He foreloved you. He set his affection on you and he put his plan into place, even amidst our rebellion and sin, to conform us to the image of his son, that we might dwell in the house of God, just like Jesus as sons and daughters of God. Now, some will say that he foreloved us because he knew that we would love him. In other words, we're the cause of his love. He simply saw in advance. I thought a little bit about my own experience as a father. I've gotten to witness my wife, Lee Ellen, pregnant with three children, three sons. We also have an adopted child. I have trouble figuring out who is who. But imagine that I said, as Lee Ellen was pregnant with her child, I tell you what, I will love them because they will love me. But if they choose not to love me, I will not love them. Well, that's preposterous, isn't it? What kind of father is that? Now, before that child ever came out of the womb, I set my affection on them. I foreloved them. I thought of all of the things and hopes and dreams of what I wanted them to be. I called them by name, didn't I? And I told them that they were mine. And if I, a fallible father, can do that, is God so much more? See, it's God that actually knit us together in our mother's womb. The scriptures tell us that all the days ordained for me will come to pass before one of them ever came to be. In other words, God foreknew my entire history. He is, I'm sort of trying to figure out this fatherhood thing. But God's very nature is father. So I ask you this question. What is your confidence? What is your confidence in your relationship with the Lord? Well, I have to work hard. Because if I cause his love, I can certainly uncause it, right? I just have to stay one step ahead of him. Continuing to do good and continuing to do the right thing. Because otherwise, what happens when I do the wrong thing? See, it's so easy for us to fall in that trap of thinking and then looking at our circumstances and saying, I must have failed. Of somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something wrong because look at what's going on in my life. And there's no peace in your life because your life is driven by circumstances rather than the foreordained love of God. So this first point that I'm trying to make is that he called you by his purpose, that he foreloved you so you can rest in his electing love. For his purposes for you are for good. You can live your life in hope 
not in fear, for God is with you. Well, this brings me to my second point. What is this promise? We see who the promise is for. What is the promise itself? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. We see a couple key points. Number one, it's all things. It's not half the things. It's not some of the things. It's all the things. Every single breath. Every single interaction. Every single action. It's the good things I do. It's the bad things I do. It's the good things that happen to me. And it's the bad things that happen to me. All things. He does not say that all things are good things, does he? No, he says that all things, the bad and the good, are working together to create a final product that is good. It's like they're pieces of a puzzle, and every single one of them is important. You ever try to put together a puzzle and you get to the end and you're missing two pieces? It's not complete, is it? it? Drives you crazy. You don't have the complete picture. See, that's what God's doing in our life. It's every single piece. And God never loses pieces. All things work together for good. So what is good? Well, there's the world's definition of good, isn't it? It's very simple what good is. Good is if I'm comfortable. Good is if I have a good life, and I have a good job, and I have good health, and I have a relatively enjoyable style and standard of living. That's what's good in the world's definition. But that's not the definition of good to the Lord, is it? The definition of good for the Lord is to conform us to the image of Christ. See, we don't have to live life with blinders on because we know what God is doing. And conforming to the image of Christ encompasses those things that are very enjoyable and also those things that are very painful. When I lose my job, when I lose my child, when I lose my health, he's conforming me and shaping me to a higher good, the good that I was made for. And much reshaping in our lives, I'm sad to say, is painful. I think of Job. Remember Job who had it all together. All things were working together for good for Job, wasn't it? 4,000 cap, you know, camels, beautiful wife, kids. And it all falls apart in a day. Can you imagine? I don't know that any of us have had that happen to that level. But Job, even in the midst of his questions, he wrote this, Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot is held fast to his steps. I have not kept his I have kept his way and have not turned aside. So he knows the truth that I will come forth as gold, and yet at the same time I don't see him. But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? For what he desires, he does. He will complete what he appoints for me. 
as many such things are in his mind. See, there's a lot of pain and regrets in life. You can't get past them, at least for me. Maybe I'm the only guy. The hard things in life, the divorce, the affair, the abortion, the death of your child, the careless words you pray to God and wish you could take back, but you can't. We can throw those aside and say, gosh, if I hadn't. But God is greater than our circumstances, and praise God, he's greater than my faithlessness. Now you may be saying, how can, how can I be sure of this, Carlos? I mean, this, this can be a great placebo, can't it, you know? Cheer up. It's all going to come together in the end. I really like how this person put it to help bring perspective. You know, the real sting of suffering is not the misfortune itself, nor even the pain of it or injustice of it, but the apparent God forsakenness of it. Pain is endurable, but the seeming indifference of God is not. We can easily think of him as an armchair spectator, almost gloating over the world's suffering and enjoying his own insulation from it. It is this terrible caricature of God that the cross smashes the smithereens. See, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our questions, when we have not yet arrived to the end product, he gives us Jesus, the holy and righteous Jesus. But not all things were good for him either, were they? He says that all things work together for good for us. But all things bad that work together in Jesus Christ work together in his life for us. You see the difference? He was oppressed and afflicted, but he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before the shears, it's silent. It's silent, so he did not open his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offering and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. See, in the midst of our suffering, there is one in us, one with us who has endured the furnace of affliction. Not for himself, but for us. True evil was allowed to happen for Jesus Christ, for Jesus Christ, so that all things would work together for good for us. The cross smashes to smithereens the concept. That there is an unfeeling, uncaring God. And even though we can't see it, what we're going to be in the end part, we can see him, can't we? It's interesting, I don't know if you are a study, uh, a student of scripture, I am, with my plenty of uh, time that I have on my hand. One of the greatest uh, sculptors is Michelangelo. And he was the one that made uh, the Pieta, a beautiful picture of, of Mary with Jesus, and also of, of David, the great David, and that beautiful sculpture of him. Well, there was something very unique about Michelangelo, because there, were, there was really one way to sculpt, and really most people sculpt that way still, but back in the day, the way they would sculpt is through a technique called 
water infusion. They would take a block, whatever the marble, whatever was being created, and they would submerge it. And then the sculptor would slowly lift just a little bit out of the water. And he would begin to sculpt on it. And it's kind of like the first 3D printer, if you will. He'd do a little bit, and then he'd raise it a little bit more. And slowly, piece by piece, you would see the figure emerge, so to speak. But you would know right away who it was or what it was. Kind of like, you remember Han Solo and the Carbonite? Slowly, he come out. Well, Michelangelo was very different than the sculpting technique. You know what he would do? He would take the block and he would put it in the middle of the studio and there would be no water, no nothing, and he would just start going at it with his chisel and his hammer. And for the longest time, people would look at it and say, what the heck are you doing? I can't tell, it's just like a mess. But Michelangelo was a genius. He had the ability to see through the rock to what it was that he was crafting. It was in his mind, so to speak. As he says, I saw the angel trapped in the stone and I carved until I set it free. See, that's the way God works with us. It hurts, it's painful. And when we look in the mirror often, we say, I have no idea what we're doing here. It just looks like a mess. But God knows exactly what he's doing with our life. He's carving us into sons and daughters of God. So are you taking your turn right now in the furnace of affliction? Are you looking in the mirror and saying, God, you've forsaken me. Look at what I've messed my life with. See, you may want the good of the world, but he wants the glory of sonship and daughtership for you. So he must do two things. Number one, he must look to the end. What it is that God is making you to be? Don't settle for a comfortable life. Because that's not what God is pardoning. And you're going to be sorely disappointed if you even get that. Look to the end, but look to the cross as well. If God starts, he finishes. And if he was willing to shed his own son's blood for you, to shape you into the son and daughter, will he not finish his work? So forgive yourself. Forgive others. Know that what others intended for evil, God intended for good. Indeed, what I often intend for evil, God intended for good. And I will be tested and tried, but in the end, not because of myself, but because of my will come forth to good. And this leads me to my final point, the process. Verse 30 says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also did. He has called us, Christian. Perhaps the very reason that you're here, Seeker, is that God has called you too to belong to Jesus Christ. 
the glory which we have in name, we will have in our appearance, in ourselves at the end. But those we call to be justified, I want to talk about that term for just a couple of minutes. What does it mean to be justified? Our legal system really has sort of a pass-fail, doesn't it, if you're put on trial. You're either guilty or you're not guilty. It doesn't really have a third status, does it? And that third status is you're justified. See, not guilty is not the opposite of guilty. Not guilty is simply you couldn't find enough evidence to convict you. Justified is something totally different. Justified is you're the exact antithesis of guilty. You are the one who is righteous and justified. What is the opposite of the word justified? It's condemned. Isn't it? There's now, the scriptures say, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, God finds you and me perfect in our character and conduct when we are not. How is it possible? It's Jesus. I think of John Bunyan, who you may know of, the one who wrote the song, Amazing Grace, which we did a, uh, a take and rendition on. John Bunyan met the Lord. He was a slave trader. You've seen the movie Amazing Grace. He speaks of the voices of 20,000 souls that he ferried into slavery from Africa to the United States. Imagine carrying that sort of guilt around every day, the voices of these people. Nothing we could ever do to change them. But John Bunyan recalled the day walking through a field when the Spirit opened to him the glory of justification by faith alone. And with it, it opened him the floodgates for the pursuit of joy. After much distress and anguish of heart, he says, and finally saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, says Bunyan, did my chains fall off my legs indeed. Now I went also home rejoicing for the grace Glory God. See, it's not what good we've done or what bad we've done. It's what Jesus has done. So how do we fight against discouragement? The accusations of Satan? Our bewilderment of what's going on in our life? Like Bunyan, we take hold of the reality that us who are called, justified, counted righteous, that God accepts us, indeed loves us and approves of us on the basis of Jesus. How wonderful to be assured of the stirring, discouraging darkness of our own imperfection that we have a perfect right. And so, my friends, you may be on the top of the mountain, or you may be in the valley of the shadow of death.
But if you are a believer in Christ, you can take this to the bank. For it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreloved, he also predestined to be shaped and conformed to the image of his Son, that like Jesus, he might be the Son and daughter of God. He called you, he justified you, he has and will glorify you. It is in this that we put our hope, not the circumstances of the world. Indeed, we can give thanks in all circumstances, can we not? For all things bad and good work together. For good for those who love him, we're called according to his purpose. Let's pray. How can we live, Father, with joy and hope and expectation when our souls are assailed by our evil deeds and by our bewildering circumstances? It is simple. Jesus Christ was given up and was forsaken that we might be adopted and condemned that we might be justified. Father, help us to see with eyes of faith, to see things as they really are. For there is evil, but God, you overcome evil with good. And nothing is too hard for you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.